Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 511, air date January 31st, 2020. Good evening, good evening, everyone. My name is Richard Kramer. I'm from Sharon, Massachusetts. And it's my pleasure this evening to introduce Shiva. He's going to speak on the science of vaccines and uh, tell us how and why it's not yet settled. His uh, interest in human health began early when as a child he watched his grandmother practicing uh, healing in, uh, in his town of Sita, India. And, um, well, the healing practice with Sita, excuse me, one of the oldest practices in India. And this motivated his interest in uh, studying systems biology at MIT, which led his, to his discovery of systems health, which is a major breakthrough that provides an integrative framework linking Eastern and Western medicine. His latest invention, Cytosolve, emerged from his doctoral research at MIT, and it provides a revolutionary platform for modeling complex biological phenomena to support the development of multi-combination medicines without animal testing. So it's my great pleasure to introduce Shiva. Great, thank you, Richard. Well, it's a pleasure to be here at Medfield. Uh, I haven't been here, uh, I think I came here a couple of uh, years ago, actually, but I haven't been in this library before. But um, what I wanted to do today was because we also have people online listening to really lay out, um, as Richard said, really the modern science, not of vaccines, but really the immune system. And I want to lay this out in a broad context. On a personal note, my involvement in the health field, you know, this vaccine movement or the vax, anti-vax movement has been going on uh, and it's been uh, developing on its own, but it's really part of the larger movement for health and freedom and, or truth, health and freedom. And I think what's important to understand is that my personal interest in this uh, really goes back, as Richard shared, uh, going back nearly uh, 52 years when I was a kid growing up in India. You know, India has a traditional system of medicine. Uh, my grandparents uh, were poor farmers. You know, we come from India and in what's called the untouchables, where we're, uh, our future in life was supposed to pick coconuts. My uh, parents were two amazing people who somehow got educated in this very oppressive caste system. Uh, and as I shared, my family was a background of farmers, but my grandmother in particular, she was a village healer uh, on weekends, but she worked 16 hours a day. And the tradition in the health model that she passed on was you weren't supposed, it was a noble service, you're not supposed to be making, you know, oodles of money on this, you know, so it's, it's part of the spiritual tradition. So she worked as a farmer and on weekends, 20, 30, 40 people would line up at her house. She would observe their face and figure out the particular uh, foods that that person needed, the right medicine for the right person at the right time. And this was part of the traditional system of Siddha. And you know, in their medical system, uh, they use food, they used uh, you know, marma therapy, they, which is massage, you know, what you would call acupuncture, but using the fingers. 
Um, they use combinations of uh, foods. Uh, they use yoga. Uh, sometimes they actually use basmas, which you would call like the equivalent of modern pharmaceuticals in the sense they were high grade, uh, refined materials over and over process. So you got nanomolar levels of you know particular substances, you know, including heavy metals at low dosages. So I saw this woman do all this, and I was fascinated with medicine. Here's a woman with no degrees was able to heal people. So that led to my journey in medicine, which has gone on today. So my involvement in the vaccine or immune is, is not a short-lived thing. There are a lot of people who've come into it, either they have an injured child, that motivated them, or there are people who've been involved in this for political reasons, or there are people involved in it because it's, you know, as you notice when nonprofits come, people get a jump in and they, it's a nonprofit strategy. But for me, it's been a noble goal uh, to fulfill what my grandmother taught me as a child. And to, and to pursue this uh, aspect of medicine. So that led to my journey, uh, you know, in uh, the United States, I came here as a seven-year-old kid, uh, started working as a full-time research fellow in Rutgers Medical School, understanding how SIDS was taking place, sudden infant death syndrome, this is back in 78. And that's where I created the first email system while working at a medical school. It, by the way, email was not done by the military, it was done by a 14-year-old kid in uh, Newark, New Jersey, that was me. Uh, so I went, when I came to MIT, I was very interested again in medicine, but the problem was that the medical, uh, that the Western medical way of looking at the body was in a, uh, you know, uh, parts-like manner. They didn't see the body as a whole. Um, so I went in and out of MIT, did four degrees, uh, but mainly focused on engineering. Because engineers, like plumbers and electricians, people actually work with systems, we are forced to see the body as a system. This is unfortunately something that medical doctors do not need to do they see the body as parts. And so if, if, for example, you get ill, you go to a doctor, you may get sent to five or six specialists, right? Uh, the old model of one uh, doctor being really able to understand you, that concept doesn't really exist uh, that much. It's more about specialization. So uh, that journey peaked for me in 2003 when at MIT a new department arose called the Department of Biological Engineering. And the reason that department came up was because something ironic took place in biology. And what occurred was the genome project ended in 2003, and we learned that we have the same number of genes as a worm. We have about 20,000 genes. We don't have a half a million genes. We don't have a million genes. We only have 20,000 genes. So that made biologists realize, wait a minute, the assumption we had that complexity of an organism is a function of the number of parts is not true. So the, the, the theory was, well, a human being so complex and a worm is, you know, a little itsy weeny beeny teeny thing. How can it be as complex as a human? It must be we have more genes. So this was this false notion, because biologists aren't engineers, they focus on little pieces of things, that complexity means um, uh, more genes, more parts. Turns out we have about the same number of protein coding genes. So this flipped biology on its head in 2003. People said we need to now see the body as a system and we need to see that it's not just genes, genes interact with proteins and all sorts of other things. So it's the interconnections that mean complexity versus just the number of parts. So in 2003, after three degrees starting six or seven companies, I came back to MIT at the age of 40 uh, to do systems biology. Why? Because I've always been interested in computing. I've built many different uh, uh, IT companies, built the first email system, as I mentioned, built a company called EchoMail but always had a love of biology. And this was an opportunity to bring it together um, because uh, the idea was 
In 2003, the National Science Foundation put forward a grand challenge was, could you mathematically model the entire human cell? And why do they do this? Because they realize that the cell is like a big factory of chemical reactions. Genes and proteins all are mixing together. And so if you could model the human cell, we could use the computer to predict risk and toxicity of medicines and their efficacy long before we did test tube testing, killed animals, went through humans, et cetera, which sometimes is a $5 billion process, you know, uh, 13 years and a lot of animals get killed, etc. And because I had a deep interest also in Eastern medicine, because I was trained in that, I said, this is a cool thing to do. And I can really, if I could model the cell, then I could do what my grandmother did using, because you could figure out what mixtures work long before you practice it. So uh, 2003 to um, seven, I worked and I created Cytosolve. So Cytosolve was a technology whose goal was really to completely radically change this very medieval drug development process. And also to really separate the truth from snake oil. You see everyone, on the one hand, you have the drug development process, which takes a synthetic drug, puts it in a test tube, right? Goes through this whole process of creating a medicine, which we then test in humans. A lot of them have side effects. Um, and some of them work, but some of them work for only some people. But the the pharmaceutical model is one size fits all. And if you look at this statistics, the pharma companies spend 30% year over year in R&D to find new drugs. And actually they're finding 30% less and less drugs every year because of the side effects. They can't get it through the FDA allowance. This is something people, uh, the broad public may not know, but the pharmaceutical companies are actually uh, not doing well. They're in a perilous situation because high risk, a lot of money, and what, and, and what comes out, we're able to sue them if something doesn't work. So high liability too, okay? So this is something important. So it's a long process. Now, if you look at the alternative medicine field, you have a lot of people uh, in, you know, using herbs and supplements and nutrition. A lot, I mean, if you go to Whole Foods, there's all these uh, vitamin products, you know, multi-level marketers are selling all these products, but the issue is what works. There's a lot of snake oil out there. So on the one hand, people are moving away from pharmaceutical drugs to this other world of alternative medicine. And there's probably some amazing stuff out there, but there's a lot of snake oil. So you can't determine what's right. So the goal of developing Cytosolve uh, was if you could mathematically model molecular reactions, if you could model cancer on, on the computer, if you could model all these complex molecular uh, phenomenon, you could then, use, it won't be perfect, but you could use that to test an individual drug or combinations of things long before you even decided whether it's even worth risking from a financial standpoint or even from a human standpoint or killing animals. So that became Cytosol. That was the invention that came out. People didn't think this was possible. Not only did I create it for my PhD work, got it through the PhD, and then I spent about five years publishing. And then we were trying to figure out how do we get this out there? And the initial thought was, well, pharmaceutical companies would surely like this because don't they want to save money? But the reality is, uh, you know, they do, uh, you know, they're creating all sorts of medicines. Um, drugs have a certain risk profile that you have to go through, but vaccines have no risk analysis. This is something interesting to understand. If you look at the three things that we as humans use out of medicine, one is drugs. Let's say we're, you, people are going, God forbid you go in the hospital, they have to give you very invasive drugs, medicines. The other thing is biomedical devices like a stethoscope or a catheter, these are, uh, and then you have vaccines. The first two have to go through very serious regulations. 
uh, vaccines avoided that, okay? So for example, biomedical device takes around seven years to get out, or vaccine make the, take 13 years. Um, but the vaccines don't have, don't have to go through that same regulatory process, okay? So this is something to remember. But my intention building cytosol was if we could do this, we could really radically change the whole world in any development, be it uh, pharmaceuticals, be it supplements, be it food, functional foods, be it vaccines, anything. You could really bring this in and say, does your stuff really work or not? Uh, that entire development process. And uh, so after, in 2012 or 13, I created Cytosol, and that uh, was this technology. And we initially try to work with pharma companies, but they are so driven in their standard model. Some of them, some of the innovative ones, uh, we showed that we could work with them, uh, which was a gold standard of their approval. But then we also did something interesting. We used this technology to actually model the molecular pathways of pancreatic cancer. And we took all the known drugs out there to see if we could find combinations that did better than giving one drug with massive toxicity. The idea was if you could give less dosages, you could increase you know, uh, efficacy and lower toxicity. And we did this just to prove, because pharma is considered the gold standard. My real interest is you know, nutraceuticals and natural products. And we ended up discovering a two-combination therapy on the computer and got it allowed by the FDA. And then at that point, we didn't know really what to do because and then we went to MD Anderson, we spun out a company with them, and they want to use this for a combination testing uh, of not only drugs, but also natural products. Uh, but a lot of what we do with Cytosol is to really understand molecular mechanisms, systems. So when you look at the immune system, the immune system is uh, something, it's a very complicated system of the body. And I've shared this before, and I'll draw it out here. When, when uh, in, uh, so, so, just to step back, the, the understanding of the immune system is what is really critical to developing a real solution for our immune health, right? So, so what is the goal here? Um, if you step back, each one of us, um, what came out of systems biology is um, your genetics are very different than mine. Your epigenetics are different, what you eat, what circumstances you put yourself through, where you grew up, that the epigenetics and the genetics determine you at a certain point in time. So the goal of health is to build what's called a resilient system. Some people think that health is merely being isolated in a nice clean environment and you're not exposed to toxins, you always drink clean water and you're completely in this almost sterile environment. That is actually not health because God forbid you suddenly got exposed, you're living in a bubble and you got exposed to something, could you be able to handle it? So health is really a function of the word resilience. So the real goal here, the real solution is, can you build a resilient system? Meaning you can take a hit and your body not only bounces back, but bounces back stronger, okay? It's the ability to come back, but come back stronger. And the best analogy I give is you go lift weights, your muscles are flabby, you put your uh, body through some weight training, but you come back from that stress actually stronger than you were before, things rebuild. So the goal here is resilience. Okay, so that's what I want to really focus on in the solution because what's happened is the politicians and the legislators have no idea of these concepts. So when they build public health, they're really influenced by, let's say, corporate interests and they don't focus on the body as a system. But if you look at the body as a system, the goal is to build resilience. That's really the goal. Um, and what do we mean by that? Okay, it means that, as I said, that in the case of when we're talking about infectious diseases, your body 
is exposed to a disease, it, it is able to shield itself, and if it gets exposed, it, it is able to come back and protect itself from that disease, but also other diseases. That exposure actually strengthens it, okay? That's what the case here is. Now, how, did, how, how do we look at this historically? So if you go back to uh, around, uh, if I were to do a graph here, so this is, let's say, 1900s, right? And we go to around here, 1960s, okay? Measles vaccine came here, 1963, okay? Measles vaccine. Polio came around here, 1954, right? Um, if this is the number of deaths from infectious diseases, okay, over 100,000, this graph looks like this and it goes down like this, okay? And what, I, what I'm saying is that by this time, 98% of measles was wiped out before the measles vaccine, okay? So if you look at that graph, uh, this was, so if you look at this graph, this is actually about, let's say, uh, 0.5. So this number here is about one out of one out of 200,000, okay? So the number of diseases, I mean, deaths from infectious diseases, this was around 14 out of 100,000, had dropped by the time the measles vaccines was invented to one out of 200,000. Massive drop. What, what occurred here? This was public health, or what I call public infrastructure, okay? This was one, you know, uh, nutrition, you know, eliminating child, child labor, right, was taken out. Um, we had uh, food, refrigeration, sanitation, so on, okay? And how did this come? This came from the workers' movements I want to talk about politics, workers' movements of the 1800s, late 1800s, okay? People were out there, American working people were out there protesting, fighting, people's names we don't even know. These people demanded these things, and in many ways, the plumber and the electrician and the sanitation worker contributed more to this than the pharmacist and the doctor, okay? So what? What did this do for the body? What this did was the body, if you're living in always these, you know, infectious, is always under stress. See, it's like if you're lifting weights every day, you're gonna tear down your muscle tissue. So that's another form of stress in the other direction. So if you're living in an environment where you're constantly getting bombarded, your immune system never has the opportunity to build resilience because it's always fighting, fighting, fighting. So what this did was, and by the way, one of the important things here was vitamin A, and we'll talk about this. Vitamin A protects the cell walls, okay? And in a, in a healthy functioning individual, you eat your red, green, all these vegetables, the <coughs> thyroid converts the carotenoids into vitamin A, okay? Um, and in order for your thyroid to be working, you have to have proper iodine, right, the right levels, which means it either is coming from your food, uh, etc. So this is what happened, okay? This was brought to you not by politicians, this was brought to you by workers' movements, fighting on the streets. This would not have been given to people. 
So what occurs here, and it's fascinating to note around here is when McCarthyism starts. And everyone thinks, in my view, I have a political view on this, I don't think it was against Soviet communism. I think, because remember what happened in the 1930s was there was going to be a revolution in this country and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the liberal democrat, was forced to give these, these gains to people so you know, the establishment would not be toppled. And in 1950s, in my theories, people were so upset, not at the Soviets, but at these workers, they branded everyone communists and went after them. Because they didn't want a resurgence of people fighting for infrastructure. And so it's curious that in 1950s, we start seeing the development of vaccines. Okay? Which had a very minimal effect compared to all of this. It gets even more interesting because in 1962, you have the passage of the National Vaccination Act. Vaccine Pro uh, Vaccination Act, okay? By John Kennedy, JF John Kennedy. Okay, so John Kennedy implements the National Vaccination Act and this moment when this was done, and I want people to understand this was based on a very, very minimalist understanding of the immune system. It was based on a very nascent science, an embryonic development of the immune system. Um, that's what, and, and the idea of that was, you have two boxes, if I can, uh, I'll come back to this, but you have two boxes. If you can, box one is the innate immune box, and box two is the adaptive. And when you get exposed to something, I sneeze on you, your innate system involves your eyes, your ears, your nose, your skin, you know, your saliva, your respiratory system, everything that's open to the world. So when that sneeze particle comes, it may go into your gut, your mucous membranes, and the innate immune system says, oh my God, someone just attacked me. It doesn't know who. It's non-specific. It just starts volleying out artillery to try to go fight it, okay? Which could be macrophages, neutrophils, but their goal is to just start shooting everywhere. And that occurs between the first zero to three days, typically, depending on the nature of the infection. And then the theory was you pass on from the innate box over to the adaptive immune system, which is the one that has sharpshooters that tries to take out, figure out, oh, what is that particular thing? Oh, it's measles. I'm gonna create an antibody for that, okay? So this is a two box model of the immune system from here. And based on this, people created huge policies. We gotta vaccinate everyone, okay? By 1986, another Kennedy, Ted Kennedy with Waxman, put in the 1986 National Vaccine, what is it, um, the Vaccine Courts, okay? I'm just gonna, I forget the vaccine courts, okay? What this said was in 1986, there was injuries being caused by vaccines. And so first of all, this got set up, a bureaucracy saying that everyone should be vaccinated, in many ways removing control away from the doctor-patient relationship to determine what was right for that patient. And injuries get caused. And then over here, the, phar the pharma companies are saying vaccine manufacturers, hey, we don't want the liability. So a Band-Aid was created in 1986. And that Band-Aid was we we're gonna protect pharma companies. We're going to protect them 
by shielding them and moving any liability against vaccines to the vaccine courts, sponsored by, again, Ted Kennedy and Waxman, that the vaccine courts would adjudicate your claim, maximum of $250,000 for death from vaccine, and you could not sue the vaccine manufacturers. So now vaccines, unlike pharmaceutical drugs, have no liability and they don't have to go through the regulatory process, which means no safety risk assessment, et cetera. Beautiful for pharma, okay? When I created Cytosol and I looked at this, I said, this is ridiculous. I said, my technology can actually help figure out if a nutraceutical works, a cosmetical, and if any of these products have risk, okay? Obviously, no vaccine manufacturer really wants to take on Cytosol, um, or a lot of, because especially the ones that know that they're risky, okay? And I challenge anyone to want to use this. But um, so that's what occurred in 1986. So since 1986 to today, there's been a growth of what people call autism, okay? I don't like using that word because immediately it's such a spectrum disorder. But what I want to share with you is, so that has engendered this thing saying, hey, we, this 1986 law was wrong, so now the anti-vaccine movement has come up. And the anti-vaccine movement, for me, never addressed the real issue, which is how do you improve the immune system? There's playing in this world of thinking, this is how you improve the immune system. And it should be top down. So the two problems with the anti-vaccine movement led, you know, until I'm considered one of the leaders now with people like Robert Kennedy and others, another Kennedy, okay, was a top-down model. We're gonna legislate this, okay? We're gonna, the state is gonna tell you, like happened here and here, and now we're gonna tweak with the legislators to fight for religious exemptions or fight for that. And that's where we are at now. So when I got involved in this, I said, look, we have to move beyond vaccines, beyond pro and anti-vax. We have to move to going back to the essence of what is the immune system because isn't the goal to, is, it, is the goal to deliver vaccines or is the goal to deliver immune health? What do you guys think? Immune health, immune health right? The goal is to deliver immune health. And anyone listening up there, um, and I think that people in the anti-vax movement have forgotten this. They want to be in the legislative business, have their nonprofits, collect people's money. We're going to fight with legislators. And it hasn't gone anywhere. For 17 years, it hasn't gone anywhere. When I got involved in this, I said it has to be a bottoms-up movement. And in New Jersey, they had a major victory because of that, what I articulated. Because it cannot be a top-down movement. But the issue is this, infrastructure to improve immune health. In Massachusetts, by the way, uh, Massachusetts got an F in infrastructure by the American Society of Civil Engineers. The worst water systems, the worst roads, bridges, etc. An F, in fact, it was a big fat F, an F minus minus. 135 out of 350. I mean, this is a serious organization, American Society of Civil Engineers. Similarly, the politicians got a D plus for integrity. So what's happened is this costs those in power money. Politicians always play the short game. They don't want to give this. So if you notice, what does a typical politician do? Choosing between giving away free stuff or giving infrastructure in order to get reelected, they give away free stuff. They don't want to play the long game. So right now, if you look at these, a lot of the destruction, I would argue, with the immune system, which we'll talk about, has taken place because of the destruction of our internal system, dirty water, dirty air, dirty food. This, you know, your pest, this is a new public health. Instead of addressing that, 
we have people talking about mandate vaccines to everyone. And then over here, so-called anti-vax activists playing around with legislators, trying to convince them to remove this little bill or that little bill. They're not addressing the big problem. They're still playing with the little fleas on the elephant. So let me talk to you about the immune system a little bit. Does this make sense? This is a history. Does this help? We need to understand this political context because we're involved in an activist. And anyone uh, listening out there, uh, I hope that's clear. And I think people, just want to check if people are listening. I think so. Let's see. I think it's still coming through. Um, let's see. One second. Richard, can you see my video? Can you see if it's coming through? Uh, no. On my Twitter? I'm just taking a quick break, guys. Wow. Just seeing what's going on here. Let's see. I'm just going to check over here one second. Yeah, I think it's gone. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, by the way, can everyone hear? Okay, out there? All right, good. Um, so, um, getting back, so what's fundamentally happened is that uh, this is what's taken place, and I was born in 63. And so my interest in health has always been to develop methods, integrate Eastern and Western medicine. Uh, you know, as Richard said, systems health. After, in 2007, I've been studying traditional medicines uh, all my life. If anyone who knows me, I live in the nutritional aisles of most. Uh, you know, I probably know every major nutritional product. Uh, and just to step back, Richard, can you? Yeah. Uh, um, so in. 2000 and uh, uh, 2007 um, uh, uh, yeah in 2007 I went back to India after I created Cytosol to really understand how Eastern medicines worked and what I discovered was that the Eastern system of medicine is actually an engineering system and that as an engineering system it turns out that the Eastern systems of medicines have a lot of very powerful ways to understand the body as a system. So people have time, they can go to a site called Your Body, Your System, or System Health, and I created a whole educational course to train not only MDs and doctors, but also the healthcare practitioners, chiropractors, acupuncturists, and to bring them, to unite them together. But one of the important parts of this is that you start looking at the body as an engineering system. And the immune system is not just any one system, but it's a system of systems. So if I can erase this, um, some of you um, watching may have seen this, but I think it's good to cover it. Let me cover this again. But what we'll notice here is that none of these activists, most of them, or the people in this movement, the anti-vax movement, there's a lot of very good people, but they're being misled to do this legislative, still assume the state should control everyone. And what you have here is if you look at the immune system, remember I said there was a two-box model so a virus comes in and hits your innate immune system. And then this turns on your adaptive immune system. Okay, this is a two box model. That was a basis of vaccine development. Virus comes in, your innate immune system turns on. This takes around zero to three days. And this is called the, the non-specific system. And this is called your specific system. And when a virus comes in, this creates an antibody. Okay? 
So the goal of this was you get a virus, you get an antibody, you must be in great shape, okay? When vaccines came, they said, we're gonna short circuit this and we're gonna put a vaccine right here. And a vaccine was an artificial form. It's really interesting, what is a vaccine? In this definition, a vaccine creates an antibody. It is an artificial form of that virus, either it's a dead virus, you use uh, adjuvants to deliver that virus, but it's fundamentally causing inflammation. The virus causes an inflammatory response, and through a series of cascaded reactions, your body produces antibodies. This is one way you're supposed to get it. This was a short circuit way. Now, anyone looking at this will say, wait a minute, if, a, if you're getting immunity this way, it, that must be a little bit different than when you get it this way, okay? It's this basic, like, common sense. Every plumber and electrician will know, but probably MDs and pediatricians don't think like that. But this is what they're trained in, okay? Well, this was a 1915 to 1954 model of the immune system, okay? That old two-system model was what was used to develop the John F. Kennedy National Vaccine Act of 1962, okay? And then a Band-Aid was put in with Ted Kennedy and Waxman's Act of 1986 to create the vaccine courts. And now you have people running around trying to tweak that legislation on both sides. But it turns out my work and from systems, uh, 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 my research work in which I present at the National Science Foundation showed there's about three other boxes here. One box is called the interferon system, the IFN system. When a, in the natural mode, when a virus comes here, this turns on and thousands of genes get turned on, okay? And these genes get turned on to protect you against other viruses. And this is a missing link between the innate and the adaptive system. In addition, over here, you have the microbiome, which is all the gut bacteria in your body, okay? This is one of the biggest areas of research. We have all these gut bacteria, we also have a virome. Well, guess what? The innate immune system talks to this, this talks to this, back and forth, this talks to this, back and forth, and this talks right up to the neural system, which is your brain, okay? It's called the gut-brain axis. So when you look at this, this entire system is an interconnected system, okay? It's not just two box model. Now we're at 2020, 19. I gave this paper um, last year, okay? Uh, end of last year. So what has happened? Science has gone forward. Policy is back in 1962 and people are fighting around, diddling around, tweaking around on policy. And I did a video out there, you guys can look at it. And it's gone viral because in families now, the mother will say, hey, I don't want to give my kid vaccines anymore. The father's like, the science says it's true. People have seen my videos and, they, and, the, and, the, and the fathers are getting listening. But the problem is people have no longer do science anymore. It's all based on emotion or politicians pushing stuff down people's throats. So what you see here is there's one, two, three, four, five boxes, okay? And these, these things are interconnected. How are you? Welcome. Uh, so what you see is these things are interconnected. So the so when a vaccine comes in here, the goal is to generate an antibody, right? That's the measure of success. Just from a system standpoint, this process is very different than when it, when it, something comes in here, turns on your microbiome, connects with your neural immune system, etc. This, the microbiome and the neural immune system are directly connected to something called neuroinflammation, okay? 
What is neuroinflammation? Neuroinflammation is inflammation in the brain. Well, autism, as people call it, they should really call it a spectrum of neuroinflammatory processes. You can have massive neuroinflammation or a little bit, okay? Well, if this is perturbed, you're gonna get neuroinflammation, okay? We don't understand this well enough. One of the, uh, the Japanese do some great research on this. One of the research that they did with six kids who had autism and six kids who didn't have autism, the six kids who had autism had two very particular bacteria, which were at, one was at six levels higher than the, uh, in the autism uh, kids versus the non-autism, and another one was three times lower than the other case. So we know that these systems are interconnected. Now, what's the solution, okay? Well, the solution is to support your immune system to have an inflammatory response when it needs to have it and to quiet it down when it doesn't need to have it. Let me repeat that again. Your body is supposed to have health, you know, you hit your hand with your hammer, your body will send white blood cells to have inflammatory response and then it'll quiet it down and it heals. Same process here, you get attacked, your body has an inflammatory response going through these very uh, complex processes and then it's supposed to quiet down. We don't know what happens when things come through this route. We don't know the risks fully. We do know nature has spent about a billion years doing this, okay, or more. We don't know this. This is maybe a minuscule amount old, okay? Does this make sense? So the bottom line is that the modern science of the immune system demonstrates to us that the, that the vaccine model that's used was not predicated on this. It was predicated on a very older science. And we're not attacking anyone, and furthermore, the modern science also shows that one size does not fit all. That's what precision medicine, we're realizing your genetics or your genetics or your genetics are very different, or your epigenetics are different, that you, let's say you grew up in a, you grew up in a bubble, right? That you weren't exposed to anything, sterile environment. You may need to be slowly exposed to artificial vaccines or something because you were brought up in an artificial home versus you playing out in the dirt. And I'm not even saying vaccine, some form of getting you out in the real world, right? Or you're probably gonna get death, deadly ill. You know, it's almost like you're growing up in a bubble. But the point is, one size does not fit all. We have to find the right medicine for the right person at the right time. So for me, in, you know, going from India, where I saw my grandmother do this right medicine for the right person at the right time, that's the opportunity I have with Cytosol. Now most of the, uh, you know, I work with a lot of interesting companies who we work tip, and we're building our own products now, typically based on natural products. We're finding combinations of natural ingredients which have amazing effects. The pharma guys, if they wanted to work with us, we probably could help them. But to them, they're on a locomotive, you know? They're making, they don't, I don't think they really care about risk, you know, in the vaccine space. Because they don't need to do risk because they've obviated the, the process. So on the intellectual and scientific side, this is the reality, okay? We need personalized medicine, right medicine for the right person at the right time. On the policy side, uh, I just put up a tweet that I'll bring up here. Um, I just put up a, uh, if people go online, they'll see it um, right before I came. I've proposed a bill to really address this issue. And anyone listening can go see it. It's, it's called the Immune Health and Freedom Act. It's a couple of, and what I proposed is, if you go back to 1962, um, what's really happened here is that the, the uh, 1962 Vaccination Act signed by Kennedy was based on old science. 
right? It's like almost we're building modern, na imagine NASA building propulsional systems based on 1920s combustion model, right? And you set up your policy and your rules. That's what the National Vaccine Act was done. And that act created all these agencies, you know, a lot of government bureaucracy and a lot of, and unfortunately, a lot of collusion between the people in the CDC who are former pharma people, okay? Then what you have is the 1986 National Childhood Vaccination Injury Act was created because of all the injuries vaccines were causing, created by Ted Kennedy and Waxman, okay? And that set up other organizations, right? Judicial and let, you know, executive to handle all the vaccine injury claims, but shielded the pharma companies. In fact, Reagan was forced to sign this and he said, quote, I have serious reservations about the portion of the bill that will establish a federal vaccine injury compensation program. Reagan was really concerned about removing liability away from market forces, okay? E.g. the farm and putting into government bureaucracies. But that was brought to you by, uh, unfortunately, you know, you know, at that point it was a heavily Democrat Congress and a Democrat uh, Senate. And, and so those are the ones who push this through. And today what we have is, if you look at what I do with Cytosol, which is really to understand risk, or what my whole basis, what my land for my grandmother was the right medicine for the right person at the right time. And that's what this is showing. We have to find the right medicine for the right person at the right time. The modern immune system is far more complicated. And, and one size does not fit all. Whereas, and furthermore, in many ways, the National Vaccine, Vaccination Act was based on such an outdated science. So that's one layer of outdated science. You try to band-aid it with the vaccine courts, and now you have activists running around trying to run around with their congressmen, please don't remove religious exemptions and all this. The whole thing end-to-end, -end, in my view, needs to be trashed. The whole thing is wrong. So what I propose in this bill is A, this is my proposal, you know, as a scientist. Typically these guys aren't scientists, is that we need to, the real solution here is if it's immune health, how do you get, really get immune health? You get it by focusing on your immune system, which is personal, and having a one-on-one -on -one relationship with your practitioner. We need to put the power back in the patient-doctor relationship. That's where this should go. You cannot have the state dictating you should all take these vaccines because these reactions are way too complex. Unless you know this, then you could go do this. But if you don't know this, it's outrageous that you have politicians using old junk science to mandate modern science. And so the, the real issue here, so we, everyone should read it if you're, if you're seeing it online. It's an actual bill. And it's a very radically different bill. It's saying all these old programs need to be trashed and we need to put power back in the patient and the doctors to decentralize immune health. It has to be decentralized because you may have an immunocompromised kid, someone else may have a healthy kid who played in dirt all his life and he doesn't need to be vaccinated. You know, I mean, you have all these, someone, uh, in my view, the real way to go about this is through nutrition and health, okay? And more and more it shows that there are two things that drive your immune health, your gut, okay? And there's something below the neural system, your thyroid, your gut and your thyroid. In order for the gut to work well, you have to have proper digestion. In order for digestion to work well, you have to have proper acid. A lot of people have deficiency in betaine and HCL, okay? It's actually all this acidosis, the doctors have it wrong, it's actually HCL, okay? You don't have enough acid, okay? So we don't have proper digestion, proper 
of bacteria. The other piece is people's thyroids don't work well, so they're not converting the foods they eat into vitamin A. And if you don't get enough, um, enough sunlight, right, particularly people of color, okay, in living in a place like this, you have deficiency in vitamin D. There are sort of key levers here that are extremely important to building your own immune health, okay? And that's where we come to. And that can only be determined at the local level. It cannot be mandated from top down. So I'm sorry to all three Kennedys, John Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, and Bobby Kennedy. You guys got it wrong. You don't know what you're doing. You, you, you based it on old science. And like legislators, you're trying to legislate something that should never have been legislated. This should not be legislated. This should go back to understanding people have common sense. They can figure it out. And I think that's what the fundamental thing is. In health, you know, what I learned from my grandmother is you're supposed to build your own intuitive ability on what you need and what you don't need. We are outsourcing so much stuff to Hollywood celebrities, to politicians, on they're going to decide what's right for me. And this is a deeply philosophical question. We have so many tools now for people to figure out what's right for them. And a practitioner, healthcare provider, the nurse, the chiropractor, whoever you use, the naturopath, you're supposed to have a personal relationship with them and figure out what's right for you. So that's in the interest of time. Richard, we have what, 6.30 to 7.30? Uh, we have till 8.30, we have time for questions. Oh, oh we do, okay. Yeah. So we can take some questions, but um, let me see what people have any questions online. Um, someone said, excellent strategy based on science. CDC folk have a lot of stock in pharma, go figure. Um, uh, iodine deficiency for sure. Uh, what if the pathology in question does not produce an immune response? Is there a way to do so? Okay, so someone's asking a good question. So they're saying, what if the pathology in question does not produce an immune response, okay? Remember, the goal is not an immune response per se. Let's, let's talk about that. Um, because of the ignorance um, in the medical field, by the way, a doctor or pediatrician maybe gets a half a course in immunology, okay? They don't really understand the immune system. 90% of them or 99% don't even read the vaccine inserts, okay? They don't even know what they're doing to you. And in fact, um, they're based, they get bonuses for giving vaccines now from the healthcare providers, okay? But the reality is when a virus comes into you, is it the virus that's putting a toxin that's hurting you? It's not true. What happens is a vi the virus or the pathogen puts something into you that your body can do two things. Either it never lets the virus put stuff into you. You know, these viruses land and they stick something in. If you have vitamin A and you have a strong cell membrane, that they can't penetrate. It's a shield. It's like your first block. If that doesn't happen, then the, then the, uh, the double-stranded RNA gets into you. And if your immune systems, your adaptive, or these are weak for other health reasons, your body will try to overcompensate, okay? And have a cytokine response. So it's not the virus is hurting you, but it's the response of your own body. And that response in some cases may go attack your spine, causing paralysis, polio, okay? And in different cases, how your cytokines respond will differentially give you different quote unquote diseases. It's all one disease though, because you had a failure of your own immune system and it didn't know how to fight back that virus. Okay, is that clear? If you have a strong immune, I mean, when people go, by the way, when people go get these flu vaccines, they only have two or three strains. There's 200, 300 other strains out there and most of them don't work. So it is a strength, instead of focusing on the strength of the immune system, we're trying to do this reductionist, 
ass, you know, <laughs> backward solution. Okay? So I hope that answers that question. Yep, go ahead, Richard. Uh, question for you. <clears throat> yep. How did your grandmother acquire her knowledge? Yeah, so the question is, did that come online? Oh, so my grandmother acquired her knowledge one-to-one. -one. You didn't go to a medical school. You had people who came to you and would teach you, and you went from teacher to teacher. It was a one-on-one -on -one training. Everything I've learned in life, Richard, has always been one-on-one. -on -one. You go to the, the, the skills-based training, the plumber and the journeyman, right? You, you go and you, you study and then you go to elsewhere. The traditional arts, by the way, medicine is an art and it's an information science. It's both. Um, so my grandmother learned from passing yogis. I mean, these people are people who lived in the woods. My grandparents are basically tribals, if you saw them, okay? So they learned from living in nature and observing others from nature. Okay? So I was quite fortunate to have this whole other world, you know, that I grew up in. But it was basically from teachers, Richard, one-on-one. -on -one. There weren't, now there are books now. There are over 100,000 palm leaves manuscripts that have very uh, detailed formulations for all different ailments that were passed on from thousands of years. The Indian government is supposed to convert them, but they're so corrupt they're just sitting on them, okay? And uh, these are written in a poetry the poetry was the encryption format. So you had to understand the poetry to decipher these formulations. Someone says, I know gut health has everything to do with immune health. That's true. Periscope is clear. What else? Um, let's see. Uh, okay. Someone says, resilience means withstand without losing any attributes, right? If you want a system. So what is resilience? Resilience ultimately is a very interesting concept. If you look at any system in nature, you know, nowadays when they build a skyscraper, they don't just build them to stand strong, stiff. They give a certain bit of motion, right? So they can bounce back and come back. They can move. In fact, in engineering, we call them smart materials now. So in engineering, you know, a wing, if, it, if, if the wing of a plane has to give a certain give. So it's the ability to take a hit and then to come back. Uh, and in fact, if you can take a hit and come back stronger, that, that's how you can measure the level of resilience. What else do we got? Um, what books do you recommend on the immune system? Well, we must address access to good nutrition education for maintaining health quality. These are, so let me address the last one. So what we have is politicians who do not want to address the infrastructure issues in public health. They don't want to make sure our water systems are clean. By the way, Massachusetts is 20-year-old water systems. I mean, I live in Belmont, which is considered a wealthy neighborhood. We get at the bottom of it says, you know, be careful, you may have lead in your water. Okay? It's, it's amazing, right? So we have to go buy bottled water, we have to buy filters, da 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 da. It's amazing in a first world country, we don't have clean water systems. And then you have companies putting a lot of pesticides into the groundwater. And the effect these pesticides have on the microbiome, um, using Cytosol, uh, we did some very interesting research on the effect of genetic engineering of pesticides on soil organisms and particularly you know the uh, plants which share the same me metabolic pathways as fungus as well as bacteria and you find fascinating things what happens when plants get disrupted if you're consuming these things they're definitely going to affect the microbiome um, one of the uh, if you want to study the immune system you know there are a number of very good books which I'll post up on immunology but from a systems perspective if you want to go watch my video that I did, it's a 20 minute video, and you can use that as a basis of Googling each one of these components, okay? 
because you need to take a systems understanding first. Yes? Uh, earlier you mentioned the role of adjuvants in vaccines, but what is an adjuvant and are they risky? Yes, so the question is what is an adjuvant and are they risky, okay? So remember, what people are trying to do is they're trying to mimic nature here. In the natural course, I sneeze on you, you, you go through this process if your immune system is strong, you produce these things, and you move forward in life, right? In a vaccine, you're trying to mimic this virus and you're sticking it into your bloodstream, okay? When the vaccine comes in, what does the vaccine have? Typically it has a dead form or a, or a sort of a less potential form, an attenuated form of that virus. But many times, and what you're trying to do within a vaccine is to force the body to create that inflammatory response, okay? And it wasn't working in many cases. So what did they do? They threw in aluminum. Sometimes they threw in mercury. They threw in, uh, and it, you know, the interesting thing with vaccines, because of the regulatory process, you can't go to clinicaltrials.gov and see in transparency what took place. There, are, there's been controversy and other things in there, like peanut aborted, oil. huh? Peanut oil. Peanut oil, aborted fetal tissue, uh, you know, MSG, all these other things. So the, it's a combination. This is why, you know. I would, again, challenge any of the vaccine manufacturers to give it, you know, in full disclosure, we'll do it, you know, we'll do it as a public service, put it through Cytosol and understand how it's causing neuroinflammation. It's one of the projects we want to do, uh, like we do with nutraceutical products, like we do with anything, because we can actually understand the molecular mechanisms. So the goal here is those adjuvants are other things that are added to enhance the inflammatory response, okay? And the effects of those adjuvants, like heavy metals, and what they have has been obviously a big subject of controversy and research because do those other things that you put in cause more damage to your body, okay? And this has been part of the, the d discourse that's been taking place. My position on this is you need to look at this whole system because you can get stuck here, but if you don't understand this whole thing, you're gonna get lost in the weeds here. The modern science clearly shows that your body is different than my body. One size doesn't fit all. The science is old. Why are we mandating people top down? Why are politicians and legislators who also have financial interests now with the, or the, the and, and less liability mandating this? It's a freedom issue. And it's a scientific issue because the science is old that all these policies were based on. What sources can you recommend to restore your natural health and detox? Well, <laughs> if I were you, I'm not a medical doctor, so just to uh, be clear on this, you know, I think you have to start with food, okay? Food is, healthy nutrition is one of the most important things. Then the issue is what foods should you eat, okay? Well, I think traditional cultures sort of figured out a lot of this. So you have to look at your personal genetics. You have to look at what sourcing you can get. And this comes down to the infrastructure issue. You know, it's very difficult for everyday people today to afford organic food. So, you know, this is an infrastructure issue fundamentally. We're not addressing. You know, we're getting apples shipped from, you know, all the way from Washington State here, right? The concept of developing infrastructure models that allow us to get low-cost fresh foods is what we're coming back to. So one of the things you have to food is medicine. You have to start with food. You know, there are certain protocols, obviously, that are very valuable for your health. You know, exercise, getting sleep. I mean, it's basic fundamentals. Layered on top of that is what I was talking about. Is your thyroid working well? Is your gut bacteria in shape? 
you know, do, are you getting enough vitamin A or are you getting enough vitamin D? Vitamin D, by the way, is not a vitamin. It's actually a, um, it's actually a hormone, okay? It controls so many reactions throughout your body. Come on in. We're getting some more people coming in. Yep. Sorry, we're late. How are you? Go ahead. We're in the question Q&A period. Come on in. Yeah. Please feel the, yeah, please feel Great. There's a couple of seats there. Yeah. Yes, Richard. Um, oh, just a quick comment. Uh, my grandmother always used to tell me not that food is medicine, but food is cheaper than medicine. She was a big yeah. believer in the importance of nutrition to, to me. That's a good one. Someone just said, uh, Richard just said, it's not only food is medicine, but food is cheaper than medicine. Well, the problem is the cheap food now is not medicine. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually the opposite of medicine. And, and the healthy food. But the reality is, you know, that's why I think the local farmers movements, uh, local access to food is becoming a very, very important piece of it. Because there's something that happens, you know, in traditional cultures, when you picked food was very important. I mean, they had, you know, um, my grandmother used to be very particular on when you actually picked, for example, the basil leaf. There was potencies based on when things were picked. People think this is sort of weird, but, you know, there was a harvest time, right? You celebrated the harvest. There were key points in life which was always connected to food and health. It's fascinating. The, 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 the holidays always, if you look at it, were always around planting, harvesting, when you picked, all these things were connected and later they became, you know, also in parallel with religious traditions. But they always were connected to, um, you know, healthy living. That's where it all started at, grounded in, um, you know, that notion of food is medicine. Um, and I think we live at an important point. We were just talking about how the, the real way that you solve most of these diseases, right, is through infrastructure. And uh, most of public health comes from infrastructure. Very little has really been done for us through medicines, per se. Okay? Um, another very interesting aspect of this is to share is, uh, everyone heard of Florence Nightingale? Mm -hmm. Who, what was she? Nurse. Nurse. During the Civil War. She was actually, she's always been said she was a nurse, you know, the lady with the lamp. She was actually a member of the Royal Society of Statistics. She was the creator of the modern healthcare system. Okay, this is not that well understood, um, and it should be because what Florence Nightingale did, she was really the mother of modern day public health. In the Crimean War in the, in the 1800s, she noticed that more soldiers were dying when they came into the hospital than on the battlefield, all right? And what she did for the British Army was she said, wait a minute, it's all, she used the five letter F word, feces. There was feces and filth everywhere. And soldiers would come in, there was feces on the floor, feces, I mean, just garbage. She was the one who said, we need to clean this up. We need to, uh, she brought in sanitation experts from London. And you saw that the level of deaths in the first winter and the second winter for the British went from 24% dying down to 4%. The French went from whatever, 12% up to 24%. And when there was no war taking place, and she was the one who created the modern public health model that you have to bring in sanitation. And that's what happened in the 1900s. We shared this before you guys came, that it was sanitation, it was hygiene, it was nutrition. These are the things that really reduce infectious diseases. I was just on a show, uh, a couple of shows, people wanted my thoughts on the coronavirus, right? 
Well, the coronavirus, first of all, let's look back what's going on, okay? China has varying levels of development taking place right now, okay? You have places like Shanghai where, you know, it's, you know, it's New York on steroids, right? But still a large part of China is still a developing nation, right? I mean, people are eating all sorts of foods. People do not have all the same infrastructure. So these zoonotic viruses like SARS, which went from, zoonotic means it's a virus that goes from an animal to a human. SARS went from um, about 5,700 people were infected at that time. 10% um, of them uh, died, okay? But that's out of a population of 11 million people, right? MERS at the Middle East uh, Respiratory Syndrome hit around uh, 30%. But again, it wasn't like vast numbers. Right now, with the coronavirus, we're up to about 8,000, I think but about 180 people have died, right? But it's about 4%, okay? The issue is, when a virus like that occurs, we have the entire media getting involved, right? I want to ask, why isn't the media doing the same thing with talking about the pesticides, the water, the dirty air, the dirty water, dirty fruit? That has never made a public health issue. And what's fascinating is these viruses, okay, 100, 200 people have died out of about 11 million, okay? It's a very small minority when you really think about it in the big, I'm not saying discount it, but what I'm saying is you have to look at that environment on how these viruses come and the infectious diseases. And you'll typically likely, in my view, consider that if you look at the immune system of these people, they're typically weaker than the people who get it. I mean, it, someone could walk in here with a virus right now. Some people get it, others won't. The issue is why do a minority get it and the others don't? That's what needs to be understood. And that understanding can only occur if we recognize everyone's different. You know, the protection system some people have and others don't have were compromised. It's not the virus that's doing this. It is the reaction of your body or the inability for your body to react. That's what's causing, you know, different levels of mortality. If you're under serious stress, anyone know, right? If someone's under a lot of office stress, they're more prone to get flus than someone who isn't. So um, we're working with a very interesting company that uh, wants to uh, get rid of vaccines for animals. Okay, because they notice these vaccines. You know, they we're giving a lot of vaccines to cows and. And I was just on the phone with them today, and they're finding combinations of very amazing natural products, you know, interesting mixture of bioflavonoids, that they are having amazing results with cows eliminating their pink eye, their black, all these very interesting injuries that cows get where they're typically sticking them with vaccines all day. So to me, it's really about beefing up your immune system. That's what we need to focus on. Meanwhile, the very corrupt politicians have us chasing around fake problems and fake solutions because they can't invest in infrastructure because they're corrupt. Yep. Well, you mentioned two large government vaccine-related bureaucracies. Could you give us an idea of the size of those two bureaucracies? Uh, I don't, you know, I don't know the exact numbers, Richard, but one of them is the CDC. Um, in fact, if you go on, online, I have the organizations listed up there. So if you look in, 19, in the, the Kennedy Act of 1962, created the, uh, created the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, ACIP, okay? It also created the CDC. And it also created another organization called the Na National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases, NCIRD. These two organizations were created out of the 1962 Act. Those two organizations, 
is almost like the fox watching the hen house. Meaning they're responsible for the promotion and marketing of vaccines, making sure everyone there's broad coverage and safety. But the reality is that conflicted interests, uh, they've always chosen the coverage. You know, everyone should be vaccinated versus talking about safety. That's what's fundamentally taken place. And um, so you have, you know, a serious conflict of interest. If, in fact, in the Atlanta conference, people have attended, say in Atlanta, every year the CDC comes and they decide, they vote on what the next vaccine schedule is. Right now we have around 30 vaccines that the CDC recommends, around 70 doses for kids. Okay. By the way, the, of those 30 vaccines, none of them have been double blind, placebo, saline placebo control tested. That's special. Isn't that amazing? Right? So, so pharmaceutical drugs have to go through much harder regulatory framework. So it turns out these guys sit in a horseshoe and around them sit all the lobbyists and many of the CDC people have a revolving door into big pharma. So that's what's going on. So I hate to say it, you know, John Kennedy got this wrong, Ted Kennedy got this wrong, and people like Bobby Kennedy who are fighting the quote-unquote anti-vaccine movement are getting it wrong because they're tweaking with this thing. They're not going after the real problem. All of these things need to go away. All of these, the 1962 Vaccination Act just needs to disappear. It's built on garbage. It's built on an old science. And now we have someone trying to fix it. The problem is uh, politicians are not, I mean, if the founders were around today who were actually not politicians, they were scientists and engineers, and they would just say, take all this away. Because engineers know that's not working. You got to throw it away. Politicians keep trying to tweak stuff and putting garbage on top of garbage and garbage. So we have a legislative model which is never, which is disconnected from the reality of science. That's what's actually occurring right now. It's an amazing thing to watch. I also have people asking, uh, are you saying to get rid of all vaccines, ultimately mumps, polio, et cetera? It's a very good question. So somebody says, I'm not, this is what I'm saying, okay? And everyone should listen carefully. What am I actually saying? Going back uh, uh, to the real goal, what is the goal of everyone here? We all want to live long and we want to live happy and we want to live healthy, right? The immune system is the operating system of that. If you take any system in your body, the immune system is probably one of the oldest systems we have. It goes back to invertebrates, right? We've, if you believe in evolution and we've come from that. If you don't, that's fine also. But if you believe in natural design, the immune system ultimately is one of the most powerful systems in our body. It's who we are. Now, how do you strengthen that? That's really the goal. Well, as I've talked about, one is eating the right food, right? Making sure you're not exposed to pesticides. We know the glyphosates and the atrazines go screw this up, your mi microbiome, right? So the goal is you want to strengthen the immune system. Now, each one of us has a certain genetics and we're growing up in different environments. I grew up playing in dirt and this and that, so I probably got exposed to all sorts of stuff, right? If you're growing up potentially the sterile American kid where your mother washes your hand, cleans everything, everything's clean in the house, you're not allowed to play with other kids, you're basically growing up in a bubble. So think about that kid, he's growing up in a bubble and if you're cesarean born and you didn't get breast milk, your immune system never had a chance to develop. Now, if you take that kid in a bubble, remember that old movie with the boy in the bubble who's wearing, right? Now, if you take that kid and you suddenly put him out in the real world, what's gonna happen? He's probably gonna die pretty fast because his immune system was never tuned. It would be like taking a kid 
or someone who was in rehab after a major accident saying, now go you know, bench press 125 pounds or 100, 225 pounds, you're gonna hurt them, right? You would argue that's an extreme case. They may need to be titrated certain pathogens in a very slow way. I'm not saying a vaccine is right. It could be you expose them either nasally. I mean, this is whole new technology development. That's in that case over here where you have an extreme case where someone's never been exposed to anything. Now, if you want them to live in whatever we call the real world anymore, right? You're gonna have to expose them in some way to do that, right? Now, over here, let's say you have someone else who's grown up eating healthy, you know, and that's why a lot of these mothers are, why do I wanna vaccinate my child, right? He's healthy. Why should I introduce this when you don't even know what the risk is? I'm gonna bring up my child and make him, and look at him, he's amazing, you know? So you have that model and he plays around, he's, he's out, right? So I'm saying this whole thing is not about vaccines or not vaccines. And this is where I think people wanna take this discussion. It's not about vaccines or not vaccines. It's about, A, what is the risk of these things? Do we understand the risk and toxicity? I shared earlier, we built a company called Cytosolve, which came out of my passion with what my grandmother did in traditional medicine. But the goal was using technology, we can actually understand molecular pathways and we can see how these things affect us, be it a vaccine, be it a supplement, be it, be it a drug. Many of the, I mean, we've offered this to people, but no one really wants to take it because we may actually find their stuff that is quite harmful, okay? So the real issue is, do you want to increase immune health, right? So the question is about vaccines or not vaccines. Look, the notion of exposing someone to a pathogen goes back thousands of years. The Chinese and the Indians and the Africans, when someone had a disease like smallpox, they would literally take the entire pus, no adjuvants, no, and, and shoot it right up into their nose, okay? You could argue that's a way of them getting it. You could argue that is a quote-unquote vaccine. It, um, in, in Africa, they used to c cut people and give them the whole thing so it went into the skin, okay, right away, you know, or epidermally. Uh, in fact, Washington used that, George Washington used that method to expose people to the smallpox sooner and it was brought to the United States by an African slave. So traditions have figured this out that you're supposed to expose yourself to natural pathogens in a way that you, you know, turn on the immune system. The issue is, is this the right way to do it, an artificial way, okay? If you wanna modulate that, right? In the old days we had measles parties or chicken pox parties, right? It wasn't seen as a bad thing. You went, you, you exposed yourself uh, and you got over it. What happened in the United States was, by case in point, the measles vaccine. In 1963, uh, the total, uh, you know, people would get measles, right? Before the creation of the measles vaccine. And the CDC said, okay, one out of 100,000 people who actually got measles, the natural way, had, were getting neural inflammation in the, in the brain, subsclerosing panencephalitis, SSPE. So they said because of that one over 100,000 was too high, 0.0001%, someone determined that was risky, we're gonna have to give everyone vaccines, okay? So the issue is who determined that percentage? And so based on that, then we started vaccines to reduce neuroinflammation in the brain. Today, the amount of young kids with neuroinflammation is one out of 88 to one out of 36. Okay, it's gone up by a factor of 10,000 times. I'm, no one, have we shown it exactly from vaccines? Have we shown it from the glyphosate? It's a number of things that are causing that. And because of that, um, 
that's why people are concerned right now, right? But the point is that the model of determining risk in vaccines has yet not been developed. So if you go to a doctor and say, can you tell me what's the risk of me just getting measles versus me taking the vaccine? They don't have like a risk assessment chart, right? Like the actuaries have, if you go and say, well, my son or my whatever, this friend over here has gotten into 10 DUIs, uh, what should be his risk profile for getting another accident? People have done this, right? So that's what's fundamentally happened in this field that the, the vaccine model um, has is based on an old science and policies were based on an old science and people are out there tweaking this. And we need to basically, uh, I, I wanna repeat, we need to take this back to the doctor-patient relationship. That's where things should be determined between the doctor and the patient one-on-one. -on -one. And the doctor should also be retrained not to, they should be given an assortment of medical interventions. I have a friend of mine who's a cardiologist. People come into me and say, look, you're 80 pounds overweight. Do you want a stent or do you want to change your diet? Okay, this is going to get you there better, but some people don't want to do this. They want to do this. Okay, do this. In the worst case, even the, doc, the, the pediatrician, the medical professionals just say that, hey, look, I don't think, you know, you're, you look pretty healthy. You came out, you know, prop, you know, I recommend you get on this dietary program, right? Let's beef up your vitamin A, let's get you, you know? That option is never offered today. There are MDs who want to do this, but the regulatory environment, the sovereignty has been taken away even from MDs. They come out of medical school, they have to join a board, you know? They're basically slaves in some ways to a system, so they basically become robots. If this, do this, if this, do this. The art of medicine has disappeared in many ways. Yes? Uh, one of the criticisms in the way drugs are tested for safety is that <clears throat> the system does a bad job in dealing with the differences, the fundamental differences between men and women. Uh, is Cytosol able to deal with that issue? Yeah, so the question is, is our technology Cytosol able to do that? Again, Cytosol is a technology that came out of my PhD work at MIT. It's pretty revolutionary in, in the sense it allows us to model molecular mechanisms on the computer long before we go kill animals or go test on people. So Cytosol has the ability uh, to model these mechanisms. We also have the ability to layer in genetic differences into it. We just did a project uh, between the University of Michigan and a foundation. There's a very rare disease called neuromyelitis optica. And um, this disease where you have demyelination of the optic nerve. And it turns out there's genetic variation between men and women that you get different proclivities of this, for this disease, plus about 300 different genetic variations. So we're able to do that. So, which you could not do, you could not create enough rats or animals to do that, right? You'd have to create all these variations of rats and you have to kill a bunch of them. So that's what excites me about this piece. And again, any of the vaccine manufacturers out there, you know, uh, it'd be great to have them do this, but they won't. I don't think they will. I challenge any of them. Yes. Just a quick question. When you were talking about measles and the shots, we, my husband and I probably never had those shots, right? I don't think so. I, I, I think I probably had two vaccines my whole life. So I'm yeah. thinking, are they going to, they'll probably come after <clears throat> us and say, I mean, why haven't they? Why haven't they come? Why You're why asking a doctor every three months, I go, and it's like, what? He's like, did you get your flu shot? No, you should get your flu shot. You really should get your and flu we shot. No, we don't want it. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm thinking, maybe they should be asking us if we got our measles shot because they're giving them to our kids. Right. 
So what about us? I mean, yeah. uh, couldn't we spread that just like a child who doesn't have a so, child? So here's, so here's the thing, right? <laughs> um, first of all, the mandates right now are for kids, right? They're basically saying, if you want to send your kid to public school, he has to get these shots. Okay, so that's it. So before, you, you could have a religious or medical exemption. Right. Okay, my kid is immunocompromised or my religion doesn't do that. People would get out of it, okay? Right. Now, what's going on is that the public health interest goes like this. There's, this is how it happened. There's a concept called herd immunity, okay? And it oh, goes right. like this, okay? The herd immunity concept goes like this. So for every vaccine, they developed a percentage of the public that needs to be immunized mm -hmm. to protect the immunocompromised. Let me explain. Mm -hmm. So if you, I use this numbers, 300 million people in the United States. Let's take that number, okay? Let's say that's the herd of Americans. Let's say within that herd, there are one out of 2,000 people, which is what the stats are, people are primary immunodeficient. One out of 2,000. So what is that? About 170,000 people. So, um, can I erase this? Is this okay? Maybe I'll do this as a, as a diagram here. So what's happened is, um, let's do this here. Because I think it, sometimes a picture will present this better. So to everyone listening online, I'm gonna really understand what is herd immunity, okay? So if you look at this, so here's, let's say, the herd of 300 million people, okay? So the issue is, someone said, okay, so some people said, okay, there's a group of people over here who are the immunocompromised. Immunocompromised, okay? These are people who have AIDS, right? There are people who are in an ICU. There are people who have bone marrow transplant, right? They cannot be exposed to even a vaccine, okay, or anyone who's deadly ill, okay, it'll kill them. This number is around one out of 2,000 if you look at the primary immunocompromised. So what's 300 million, right, divided by 2,000 is what? So that's 300,000 divided by two, about 150,000 people. So they're saying to protect this 150,000 people, and we're not, we're a very sympathetic, compassionate society, to protect them, for every different, for every different uh, virus, so it doesn't get to them because you have all these people around them, right? Right, and these people are in a population. So for measles, they said we need to vaccinate. Initially it was like 70%, and then it went to 80%, then it went to 90%, now it's at 95%. And by the way, <laughs> the vaccines are themselves failing. So they're saying 95% of 300 million people need to be vaccinated. So what is that? That's 270 million, right? Times another 15 million, 285 million, right? So 285 million people, according to this, their mathematical model of the herd, need to be vaccinated to protect those people, okay? So 285 million people, we need to vaccinate, 280, sorry, five million people we need to vaccinate to protect that group, okay? So, to achieve that 95%, they're saying, hey, wait a minute, you can't be unvaccinated, okay? You can't be unvaccinated. This is the argument. This is, and, but you'll find out what the problem with this argument is. 
So if you want to protect this set of people and you want to vaccinate all of these people, the assumption is these people are not getting injured in some way, right? What is the injury rate to these people? Like, are these people getting injured because of the vaccine? What is that rate? Let's say it's 1%. Well, that number would literally come to around 2.8 million. Okay? Now, we have one out of 20 kids, in the, one out of five kids in the United States has a mental disorder, and 54% of kids have autoimmune disorders. That's what's happening right now. Is it vaccines? I'm not, you know, but it could be many things. Vaccines, the junk food, the pesticides, a whole combination of things, right? Uh, but the issue is that this rate is very high, or whatever that rate is. So the question is, do these people not matter? So if you play the social justice warrior argument out, uh, which is a liberal dem democrat model, we want to always protect, you know, or that's the claim, then what about these people? Now, if these people are getting hurt, aren't they also going to then form, join the immunocompromised? Okay, so what will happen, my theory is this immunocompromised group is gonna keep growing and growing and growing and the healthy people will get vaccinated, these people can't get vaccinated. So if you work out this argument, so if you have a schoolhouse of a thousand kids, let's say there's 10 kids in there who can't be vaccinated because their immune systems are so bad. The other 990 kids are gonna have to be vaccinated. And let's say a percentage of them get it hurt. So they're gonna move into, so what happens as you play this out? Are you gonna have all the healthy kids getting vaccinated and then the unhealthy kids can't be vaccinated? Where does this end up? So I think the entire model, and it's further exacerbated by the fact the academic scientists make money off this, they get grant money. I mean, I happen to be one of the few MIT PhD scientists who went to the Department of Biological Engineering, which is a premier you know, department in this. Many of the guys who come out of there go start the biotech companies and, and they promote this religion. So, uh, in fact, what's interesting is that, I don't know if you just saw, a professor at Harvard, the head of the Department of Chemistry, was arrested, which I think is an awesome thing. Uh, because he was, the academic model is sort of where a lot of this incestuousness starts. You know, starting with the Mansfield Amendment of the 1970s, academia, went away from doing real science to becoming politicians. So the academic is now also a salesperson, right? They're trying to get in grant money, grant money, grant money, and they're never gonna rattle the cage or you know upset the apple cart on anything that doesn't make sense. This professor, who was the head of the chemistry department at Harvard, was not only, I mean, he gets paid a salary, he also gets $15 million, he got $15 million in NIH and DOD grants. Um, they get to do consulting. Our federal tax dollars, they also get to own the patents, right, on with whatever they produce. Plus, he was doing consulting for five years with China with their Thousand Talents program, which was to take U.S., you know, Chinese talent to China. And luckily, the DOG got him. But I think until we see academics, more academics being thrown in jail, because this racket between MIT and Harvard is going on every day. And all these major questions, yep. So, with the focus on the importance of shifting the focus onto the doctor-patient relationship, yeah. which I think makes perfect sense, on the one hand, on the other hand, you have doctors who have 
almost no training in immunology by the time they're fully minted MDs. Right. And they're conditioned by a system to follow orders and do what they're told and put their own discretion aside. Do we even have an, a medical infrastructure in yeah. the term of human That's resources a great question. that are capable of doing that? Or are the doctors basically going to be scared, running scared, and be part of the resistance to this solution? So it's a great question. So, you know, my goal in putting, I, I propose a draft bill, which is to eliminate all these programs and to put um, decentralized power back in the doctor-patient relationship to make these decisions. You know, it shouldn't be mandated. Um, the, the thing with that, Richard, is ultimately, this piece is a part of the bigger healthcare problem. When a doctor, typically in order to become a doctor, you go to four years undergrad, got a bunch of loans when you come out of there, then you gotta go to four year medical school, more loans, and then you gotta go to two or eight, depending on the specialty. So you have your undergraduate loans, your medical loans, plus your you know, in residence, you may get paid something, right? You're treated as a slave, essentially. And at the end of that process, you have loans and given what's going on, it's actually a disincentive for most doctors to start their little family practice because they need at least two administrators, the paperwork they have to do, so many of them end up joining big hospitals so they can pay back their loans. The ultimate thing that needs to happen, or the additional things, I mean, I didn't want to get into this, but I can, is that we need to also eliminate the need for a doctor to go to undergraduate even to pursue medicine. Many other countries do it. You should be able to go right from, right from high school you know, maybe one year, and then you should be able to go to medical school. So right, it's like a trade, right? You don't need to do that to go to plumbing, electrical, et cetera. You go training, and then you get your journeyman's license. The four years, most of the four years undergraduate education, we can get into the whole student loan scam, is unnecessary in many ways. By the time you're, you know, high school, right, if you want to go to the trade, you should be able to go do that. The second thing that, so basically I'm saying remove that so you're eliminated that huge burden on these medical doctors. There's a significant set of people who do go into medicine because they want to do the right thing. You know, they want to practice Hippocratic Oath, but the system is so powerful that it basically subsumes them. The day that they're graduating, all the dinners are brought to you by the big pharma companies, right? They fly you to Bermuda. Every, every, every little tchotchke you get is from them, right? So the entire system is imbued with them. If you even go deeper, you find out there that the entire healthcare model, when you have big pharma, you have big hospitals, and then you have the big insurance, these three groups actually work together to keep the cost of healthcare high. Because that's why you buy insurance. God forbid something happened, oh my God, I need insurance. In between that triangle is a two very important entities called group purchasing organizations and pharmacy brokers and managers, PBMs. These guys were created, they today, these two groups control the supply chain of everything into the hospital and everything into a pharmacy. There's three of them right now, three GPOs and three PBMs. They basically don't own anything but the contracts for distribution. This is why a 10 cents aspirin is being sold for 50 bucks, okay? And those GPOs and PBMs were given the rights during the Clinton era to give uh, kickbacks to the hospital administrators to artificially keep these costs high. Basically legalize corruption through a safe harbor act. So that needs to be removed. You need to eliminate the, the need for the four year. I mean, there's a bunch of things that you can hit that can have massive effects. 
and you need to decentralize. You need to do all three. You know, my goal in this proposition was let's decentralize at least. Let's see how people react to that because you cannot have the immune, immune health top-down controlled, Soviet controlled, in my view. It can't be top-down. The immune system is way too complex. Yep. You know, in, in the meantime, though, kids are being taken away from the mothers and fathers in this state anyway. Yeah. What can we do about that in the meantime, though? You mean when they if they don't take care of their kids, yes. right? Yes. Yeah, so, so I think you're bringing up this bigger fundamental issue. The, the fundamental issue is this. Do you as a human being know that, that you have the intelligence? Do, do you believe that a human being has a common sense to make their own choices for themselves? Yes. Or does a state need to mandate? No. And this is the fundamental issue. The liberal democrat position, which is a philosophy, is they know better than you. Mm -hmm. That they know better and you don't know better. And this is a very fundamental issue. I think this is where the real division is. So there are people who get involved in the anti-vaccine movement. And I just sort of had this big epiphany of this because I got involved in it from a scientist. And I noticed people like Bobby Kennedy, who've been involved in this movement for 17 years, who voted for, who endorsed Hillary Clinton, mm. who is pro-vaccine. The, the Clinton Global Initiative got hundreds of millions in research funding to promote vaccines. So how could you be saying, I'm an activist against vaccines, meanwhile you're endorsing Hillary Clinton? All right? And uh, there's a guy called Joe Kennedy here. He just endorsed him. And he's also pro-vaccine. The reason I'm bringing this up is, the epiphany I had is, end-to-end, -end, it's a philosophical difference. Even a guy who claims he's fighting for vaccine, against for vaccine choice, he still believes in the top-down model that we're gonna legislate this, we're gonna get the right, I'm Bobby Kennedy and I'm gonna go talk to the right and it's not working. Over here is a recognition, I as a human being know my body, I'm, I'm a mother, I know my child, I'm gonna make decisions for my child. By the time that everyone got into this room today, everyone here probably made 100 decisions. What clothes to wear, you know, what, what, where they were gonna to go to a restaurant, what shoes to, all these things we made. Now imagine all of those things starting to be dictated. Where do you end up? And that's what we're talking about. So when you tell a mother she doesn't know enough for her kids, when you tell, I'm gonna tell you how your immune system works, you need all these vaccines and, and you can't get exemptions and you can't be allowed into school. This issue, the vaccine issue in my view, is as big as a civil rights issue. Mm -hmm. It's basically an issue of freedom or slavery. Mm -hmm. And that's why these people for the last 17 years in the so-called anti, who've been tweaking around with this, who've been running organizations, you know, to, um, uh, to uh, tell people they're fighting for stuff when they're actually just playing around with the liberal Democrat politicians, it hasn't gone anywhere. This is the same issue with the Breast Cancer Foundation. They become a multi-billion, yeah, I'm, I'm, for, I'm against breast cancer, who wants, so that's a common thing. But they start these huge nonprofits which are not incented to ever solve the problem. So they become entities unto themselves. So there's a huge financial incentive for family separation. Mm -hmm. There are people who are making money out of taking kids into foster care. So the financial incentive is, that there's a two-part model here. There's a financial incentive and there's a denial of freedom. And that's what these policies are ultimately doing. On the one hand, you take away people's freedom and you're also gonna take some money from somewhere. That's what's going on consistently. I think that's the big division and it's an important division. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's good we have that division. And I think it should be fought out because um, 
this division is going to determine the trajectory of a democracy. It's really freedom or slavery. And that, so when we are telling people that you can inject stuff into me, now they're starting with kids. What happens when I can't, people have discussed this, that you can't get your driver's license without showing you, did you get all these vaccines? Now imagine that you take, you can't go to the public areas, public, right? This is where this starts going. So now you can't drive, you can't get a driver's license. Maybe you can't even take the MBTA. So this is what China does. Restrict people to villages, you can't move around, you're quarantined. So the vaccine issue is an amazing issue. It's really about the containment of people's rights at a very biological and fundamental level. That's what's really going on. And you cannot be compromising on this. For 17 years, people have been like, oh, uh, we're, and by the way, what's fascinating is the pro-choice movement, which claims they care about you know, my body, those people are actually pro-vaccines. And I, and I realize why. And the reason is they, at a fundamental level, believe in top-down control. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. They believe in that ethos. And even in that, they have the science wrong. Because three days, I mean, this, is a, this is not even a political question, three days after conception takes place, the epithelial forms, there are two lives there. This is not even a biological question anymore, you know? This is just a biological truth. So the decisions are being made. So the people who are pro-choice, when they're pro-vax, they say, well, that's about me. But when you make a vaccine choice, it's about others. But even in that realm, it's, it's about others. It's two people, right? So I'm saying that the contradictions are quite fascinating on where the science is never really fully baked on, 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 on the top-down model. They use science as they need it. Yes? So, <clears throat> along the same vein where doctors seem to have been institutionally conditioned to do what they're told, it seems to me that the population in general is drifting in that way, particularly among the younger cohorts who, uh, when I engage in discussions with uh, young, young par parents with young kids, they're terrified about the idea of making decisions on their own mm -hmm. which vaccines their, their children should or should not get. They've just been so conditioned and so indoctrinated. They're terrified to the point where the terror is so strong that they're just perfectly happy to do as they're told. Uh, to what extent do you think that's a problem? And has it gone so far that it's beyond overcoming? Yeah, it's a good question, and I think it's a good way to end on this last diagram I'll do. Um, I've been, you know, I, I have a, there's a very interesting uh, phenomenon that's taking place, and I think this phenomenon is reaching an inflection point, and uh, it goes like this. So if you have, I could do it as a triangle here. If you have, uh, people here can see it, freedom, right? Let's put truth here, and let's put health over here. So, freedom to have discourse, debate, open conversations, make decisions, choose, right? That's what freedom is, you make a choice. And this, this aspect of freedom is what enables us to do the scientific method. The scientific method is a very interesting 
phenomenon. It basically says you see something in nature, you don't really know how, what's going on. You then come up with a guess, you do some experiments, and if your experimental results match your guess, you say, oh, I understand that, right? There's a truth. If it doesn't match your guess, like Richard Feynman said, it doesn't matter how good looking you are, what family you come in, and you're just wrong, okay? Um, but this requires freedom of speech discourse. This is now being replaced by what people are calling scientific consensus. Okay? This is a herd mentality. Oh, everyone believes the earth goes, the sun goes around the earth. I don't care if this one guy over here, Galileo, has all the data. It doesn't matter. The scientific consensus, because you shut down freedom, you shut down discourse, you don't allow people to think and make choices, so you push everyone towards science. It's not even a science, it's sort of an oxymoron. Scientific consensus. And the earth yeah. is flat. Uh, and the earth is flat, or, or uh, CO2 is a pollutant, or antibodies are the measure of immune health. Like if you have this many antibodies, you must be great, okay? You take a very complex system and you reduce it to a single variable. And when you do that, you can manipulate people. So this is happening, which means either you get a truth or you don't get a truth. Now, if you don't get a truth, what happens is people create a fake problem, right? And a fake solution. And you get to poor health, okay? So for example, the fake problem is you gotta vaccinate everyone. You know, public health, vaccinate everyone. Fake solution, vaccines, right? Inject everyone. So now you start, or you know, everyone has to um, uh, eat, you know, uh, process, forget about eating healthy, you know, nutritious, uh, non-GMO free food, right? So you create a solution which gets poor health. Now you have weaker people. Well, weaker people don't even have the time to fight for freedom, right? This doesn't occur. If you have truth, you come to a real problem, you know? Well, the real problem is public health and infrastructure, right? That's what occurred in the 1900s. We didn't have sanitation, we didn't have vitamin A, we didn't have hygiene. We put that in and then we had a real solution, right? And we got real health. This is when uh, I talked about the amount of infectious diseases went down by 98% for measles. Measles was eradicated before the measles vaccine came because of hygiene, because of food transportation, because of nutrition during the 1900s to 1963. Instead, we create a fake problem and a fake solution. So this is what's going on, but it all starts here. You constrain people's freedom of thinking, right? People don't think, they don't question anything. And you also have this phenomenon now in education. A kid goes to college, he's got 200,000 in loans. He sits there, he wants to get an A so he can get his job. The teacher who's there is also now practicing the oldest profession in the world. Okay, if you know what that is, right? They're just getting government grants, government grants, government grants. They're pleasing whoever, oh, climate change, sure, it's happening. Quote, unquote, climate change, right? So you have everyone basically kissing somebody and not telling the truth anymore. So the student gets his A's, he gets his job, the teacher gets his grant money, and everyone's sort of BSing everyone. That's, that's the culture we created. Not to say there are not some good people there who are watching this, but the majority of the trend is movement towards that. And there's a set of people who have, are making a lot of money. And my theory is it's the big pharma, I mean the big universities. If you look at big universities endowments, they keep growing and growing and growing, okay? They're basically hedge funds. You look at Harvard's endowments, about $50 billion. Last year, seven guys made $56 million in investing at Harvard, okay? So what are they doing? They're taking 
public dollars, and they have a thing called the university. That's their front end. But what they're really running is multi-billion dollar hedge funds and paying no taxes and buying up real estate everywhere. And their professors think they're God's gifts everywhere, right? So that's what we've created. And that's why I think we're at a point where you can't tweak this stuff. Some of these things just need, they need to be completely disrupted. So thank you, Richard. I appreciate everyone coming. And uh, we can talk afterwards, but I'm going to end now. But thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.